0: Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "'They have no wine.' And Jesus said to her, "'Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come.' His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of our Lord.
1: Thanks be to God.
0: You may be seated.
1: I don't really know whether to say amen or bottoms up, I guess. It's a, little, it's a little strange, isn't it? I mean, just, just think about it. Oh no, a party's going to end a few days early. We're out of wine. Quick, call Jesus. I mean, it's just, it's just strange, isn't it? And, and do you realize this was his first miracle? The beginning of his ministry. His debut, right? His first public act as Messiah. I mean, if, if you were Jesus, what would you do first? Preach a killer sermon? Raise somebody from the dead? Make a whole bunch of wine for people who had been already probably drinking for several days together? I mean, it, it doesn't matter really your view on social drinking or whatever. This is just weird no matter what, okay? It's a, it's a strange situation, and it's not exactly how we tend to picture Jesus, is it? And we kind of tend to picture Jesus as the guy who'd be frowning at the party, right? Kind of, uh, you know, doing a little bit of this, kind of keeping an eye on on everybody. Not not the person you want to spend time with. In fact, even if you're a Christian, right? Even if you're a Christian, the the Jesus many of us imagine, I'm guessing most of us probably wouldn't want to hang out with him. There's a whole, for example, there's there's a whole series of um, really poor quality and deeply irreverent uh, videos on YouTube of Jesus. Maybe, you, maybe you've seen these. Uh, it kind of shows a little bit how we tend to think of him, how we tend to approach him. Um, and they're really weird, but I'm going to show it anyway. So,
2: Hello. Welcome to the first Christian church meeting. Here are the rules. Rule number one, spend all of your free time in church Rule number two, you're not allowed to have any fun unless you're laughing at how dumb the devil is. Rule number three, wear t-shirts with my face on it. Rule number four, always smile and act happy. And finally, wear a stylish beard like mine. Well, alright. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. Uh, Don't try and hide, because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry.
1: on and on and on and on, but we'll just kind of cut it there, okay? You get the idea. I mean, that's the Jesus we tend to imagine, isn't it? I mean, if if we're honest, you know, it's kind of, it's just not not the guy you want to hang out with necessarily, this this stoic frown. But in John chapter 2, Jesus begins his ministry at a party, turning water into wine. I mean, you kind of got to love that, don't you? I mean, at the very least, in my opinion, this is, this is confirmation uh, that what John is writing is, is true. Because who would, make, who would make that up, right? If you're going to write a story about the debut of the Son of God as a miracle worker, cure for cancer, world peace, or just a whole bunch of wine, right? So what's, what's going on here? Why does Jesus do this? And why does John tell us about it? Especially why does John give it such prominence in his gospel right there in chapter two? The other gospel writers don't even tell this story. But I mean, who would make this stuff up? Why would he do this? Well, I think we tend to view this miracle at first glance at least as kind of trivial, just sort of, silly showmanship almost like he's a, just doing magic tricks or something but i actually think it was one of jesus's most significant jesus knew exactly what he was doing in that moment because in this bizarre little miracle that we often sort of skip over and you know just fur our brows at not really sure what to make of it in this little tiny miracle i think we get a glimpse of who jesus is why he came And how he makes it possible. Because Jesus offers us a brand new everything. Jesus offers us a new kind of everything. Well, let's jump in here. First, who is Jesus? Now, to answer that question, we have to kind of step back first and even just ask, okay, who's John, right? And why is he writing uh, many of us, if you're reading along, we're going to be reading all of the Gospel of John. We'll be camped out here the next handful of Sundays in John. So that's a pretty important question. Who, who was he? Well, John was one of Jesus' disciples, okay? Uh, but more than that, John seems to indicate in his Gospel that he and Jesus were, were kind of best friends. I mean, they, they spent a lot of time together. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, John becomes Mary, the mother of Jesus, his primary caregiver, okay? So John, he's not merely a disciple. He's not merely an eyewitness to these events. He has an inside track. And look what he says about why he's writing the gospel of John. It's in John 20, so right at the end of the gospel. We're gonna go back to chapter two here. But at the end, John tells us why he's writing. He makes it very clear. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs, he's saying, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, what are those signs that John is is referring to? He says, these signs, it's a specific thing. Well, there there are seven signs signs in john all clearly labeled he kind of goes through this list particularly in chapters two through about 12 he he goes through these seven and feeding the five thousand walking on water raising lazarus etc etc but the first of these seven signs is watered wine in chapter two verse 11 john's observation after this miracle has happened he says this the first of his signs jesus did at cana in galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him Okay, so you put those two together, chapter 2 and chapter 20, and essentially that means what John is saying in 20, that these signs, these seven signs, beginning with water to wine, of all the things I could have written down about, about Jesus, these seven I'm writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So water to wine, it can't be merely insignificant, a silly little party trick, Something more happening. It's one of the big seven. It's one of the big seven for John. Well, let's just kind of walk through this story together. We're we're back in Jesus' first week of ministry, okay? Last couple weeks we've been in Luke, so we got a little bit ahead of ourselves. Now we're back. It is Jesus' first week. All he's done so far in the Gospel of John, essentially, is get baptized by John the Baptist and call a handful of disciples. And then they head off to a party. Now, a wedding party in that day could last as long as a, as a whole week. And the the, response of, of, or the the responsibility for all the provisions would have fallen to the groom. He had to pay the bill for the party. And in a, a culture like theirs, okay, a hospitality culture, a shame culture, it wasn't merely taboo to run out of wine. I mean, this, this would potentially change their social standing within the community. This is a big deal. I mean, it's not the end of the world, right? Okay? But it's a big deal for them. And so Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to him and she tells him. Now, do you think she was expecting something spectacular in that moment? That she thought he'd do a miracle? I don't think so, personally. Because remember, this is the first of Jesus' signs I mean, Mary, I mean, she knew that Jesus was significant, right? She remembered the angels and the, the wise men and the shepherds. She knew all of that. But I don't think she was expecting anything spectacular in this moment. So why does she tell him? That just would have been his role. I mean, I think she had probably by this point gotten used to depending on, on Jesus. Many would believe that, that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, probably died sometime during Jesus' teenage years. And so now Jesus is 30. Jesus, as the eldest son, he would, have, he would have borne the responsibility for the family. So if Mary's going to tell anybody, of course she's going to tell Jesus. So she tells them. But look at what Jesus says He says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Kind of a strange verse, isn't it? We'll talk more about this in a minute, but let me just say first off that I don't think Jesus is being harsh or rude in in that statement by calling his mom woman. I don't don't think that's what's going on here culturally. It would have been a very different thing. And yet Jesus is sort of using this term as kind of a polite distance, sort of separating himself out of this situation. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus hour, all throughout John. John uses that phrase often, Always refers to the hour of his death, to the moment of his crucifixion. For Jesus knows that once that clock starts ticking, there's no stopping it. And so Mary. Mary responds by telling the servants, Well, just do whatever he, do whatever he tells you. And like that, instantly it seems, Jesus springs into actions. He, you know, he tells the servants, get those jars, yes, the the ones that are for ceremonial cleansing, get those, fill them with water, and then take some water to the master of the feast. He's kind of the master of ceremonies, the the party guy, the, the guy in charge of making it all happen. And like that, best wine ever. I mean, just there in that moment, and and those jars, I mean, if you're curious, this would be upwards to about 1,000 bottles of wine. Parte, right? I mean, this is, this is wild stuff, isn't it? What, what is happening here? And I, and I picture Mary and John some years later, after Jesus' death, the resurrection and ascension, you know, again, John as her caregiver, I picture them reminiscing, thinking about this first, what, a, what an unusual wedding that was. I mean, what, an, what an incredible wine. What an incredible day that was. Because I, I don't think in that moment they probably fully realized all that Jesus was doing. But in hindsight, Jesus offers a new kind of everything. Everything changes here. So who is Jesus? Who do we see him to be through this story? Jesus is the true master of the feast because again we kind of picture him at the party you know he's got a tally of how many drinks everybody's had seeing if anybody's laughing too hard or having too much fun frowning in the corner i mean honestly how many of us would want to have jesus just sort of show up at our new year's eve party or our super bowl party or whatever right we're afraid he's going to come in and say not too much wine just just enough to make me angry right i mean that's that's what we think of And yet when Jesus shows up at this party, it instantly gets better. The master of the feast, okay, he was the one supposed to keep the party going, making sure everybody's having a good time, keeping an eye on the the food and the drink. It was his responsibility to be the life of the party. But where he fails, Jesus steps in, and it's better than ever unlike anything else. Listen, I think so many of us tend to reject Jesus or reject Jesus' way of life because we assume that the fun will be over if we do, don't we? I mean, if I give my life to Jesus, and I just I'm gonna start saying no to everything. And, and We just kind of assume that, that coming to him right, and, and following him, it's going to be a colossal letdown, the ultimate buzzkill. Now, with, without a doubt, When Jesus steps in, he changes everything. And there are are things about our lives, my life, and yours that are completely unacceptable. But Jesus doesn't offer us a life of drudgery. That's not what he invites us into. If you reject Jesus because you think the good life will be over, you have no idea who it is you're rejecting If you reject Jesus because you think your sins, whatever they happen to be, those things that you run to time and time again, you think they offer you something more that he can't give or something better, you have no idea who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the master of the feast. He's the inventor of all things good. Just just look at verse nine. I I love how the story goes here. This is when the master of the feast taste Jesus's wine, he actually has to stop the party. It's like, whoa, wait a second. And and he goes over and he he talks to the groom, the bridegroom, who, who would have been responsible financially for it. And he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, and just a little tidbit, literally that word for drunk freely in the Greek has the idea of when everybody's had enough to be just a smidge on the tipsy side, okay? That's the idea. When that's happened. Then they bring out the poor wine. You have kept the good wine, the best wine, until now. See, the Bible, when when it refers to wine, which is all throughout Scripture, it is almost always in a positive sense. It it is seen over and over again as one of the symbols of God's provision and blessing. His his goodness poured out on his people, his, his abundance. Yes, I mean, the Bible is opposed to drunkenness, okay? Absolutely it is. And yet wine is a symbol of God's favor, a beautiful picture of his delight and what he offers to us. The point is, Jesus makes the best of the best for our joy and celebration, thousand bottles of the finest. I mean, if you are a wine drinker, if that happens to be your, your preference, just, just imagine. The best that you've ever had, multiplied by a thousand. The smell, the color, the taste, handmade by the Son of God. And actually, what's interesting here, some commentators actually say that with the language going on here in the the text, the, the language of draw some out, it actually implies that Jesus didn't just turn the jar's water into wine it implies that he turned the whole well into wine. An endless supply of God's goodness and provision, of his joy. I mean, if you think back in the Old Testament, right, Uh, if you you know the story of Moses, what was Moses' first sign, his first miracle? It was turning water to blood. It was a curse poured out on the Egyptians. But when Jesus comes, he does something new. Something exciting, something fresh. His first miracle is turning water to wine, a blessing. Jesus offers us a new kind of everything. Like what? What's new, right? What, what, what does he offer? Well, if Jesus is the true master of the feast, then he offers us a brand new kind of joy. That we as Christians, we have a brand new kind of joy. And and John, all throughout, and and really in Jesus' life, I mean, joy is a big theme. For, For example, later on in John 15, Jesus would say, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What is joy anyway? It's one of those words, right, that's just... Like, anytime I try to define it or, or put my mind around it, it's really hard. I mean, I, I always know when I've experienced joy. I always know when I've, when I've been around someone who's experiencing joy. I mean, you can't miss it, but it's hard to put our, put our words on it. I mean, we know that it's, it's more than just happiness, because we could probably all tell stories of people in, in really dark times, whether depression or tragedy, who still had joy even in the midst of that. It's it's about satisfaction, right? It's it's about not just circumstances, but about being. It's trust. It's contentment. It's delight. It's a feeling we don't have very often. Sometimes it seems. But is joy what people think of when they think of Christians? Is joy what people think of when they visit our church? It's joy what people think of when they get to know you. Maybe ask some people. Ask your kids. Am I a joyful person? Ask your roommate. Just sort of, you know, see what they have to say. I mean, life is full of pain. I know. Absolutely. And we weep with those who weep. But some of us think grumpiness is a virtue. If your life is not characterized by joy. And chances are you know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, the rest of us know who you are. <laughs> but if your life is not characterized by joy, have you met the master of the feast? The one with abundance who pours it all out on our behalf. I mean, joy is not an option on the Christian life. Joy is the Christian life. That's just who Jesus is. He's the master of the feast. But next question, what did he come to do? Because he he didn't just come to throw a party or help these guys throw a nice party. And some of us, we might ask that, what did Jesus come for? Why did he come? We might say, well, he came to, to teach us, right? To, to inspire us, to show us how to live. All our true answers, right? That's why he came. It's just insufficient. We might make it broader, right? And, and say, well, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. And that's, that's a better answer, certainly. Um, but even, even that falls short a little bit because it's, you can still ask the question, well, why did Jesus come to die on the cross for our sins, right? It doesn't get at the why behind it. So what did he come for? Now, I know this is subtle, um, but I'm convinced it's in this text. I I first heard this from a pastor uh, named Tim Keller who really influenced me with this this sermon as a whole. I wish I could have just played his. It would have been so much better, but you're stuck with me. But um, Deeply influential to me. But as I understand the writings of John as a whole, not just this passage, I think it becomes clearer. We get the most beautiful answer in this miracle, but you have to look for it. What did Jesus come to do? I think the key is in in verse four. That's the the weirdest one, right? That's where Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I mean, it's strange because of the language and him saying, you know, woman and all of that. We We don't get it. But actually the strangest part to me about that sentence or that statement is that then like three seconds later, he goes and he does it. I mean, you notice that there? My hour's not yet come. Oh, wow, look at the time. It is. It is. My, it is. My hour's here. You know, Like no, no. Or, or, or we think, you know, Mary just sort of talked him into it. Fine, mom. You know, it's like, like you can sort of manipulate the son of God into doing whatever you want. I don't think that's what's going on here. So what is, right? Why would Jesus say that and then three seconds later go and do this? What do you think is going on here? What do you think Jesus is thinking about in those moments? I mean, it's impossible to know, of course, right? We're all just guessing. But what does every single person think about when they go to a wedding? What do you think? I wonder if I'll get married one day. I wonder what my wedding will look like. I mean, it's, it's inevitable sitting there in that moment, and there is Jesus who knows the answers to those questions. And he knows what his wedding will be and he knows what it'll take to get him there. And so when Jesus responds to his mother, it's like he's saying, woman, what does this, what does this have to do with me? This isn't my wedding. Remember, a groom is responsible for the wine, for the provisions. Saying, this isn't, this isn't my wedding. My hour has not yet come. My wedding feast is not here yet. It's still, it's still in the future, he's saying. Why did Jesus come. He came for his bride. He came for us. I mean, all throughout the scriptures, it speaks of God as our husband, our faithful husband, and, and we as his often unfaithful bride. And we saw it a couple months ago, right, when we looked at the, the story of Hosea the prophet, right? But it, it is everywhere. We have been unfaithful, and yet God will go to any lengths to win us back, even, even to the, the point of coming here himself. And as Jesus stands there at that quickly diminishing party, I'm convinced he's thinking about you and me. He's thinking about our wedding day. It feels like a stretch. I know, maybe a little bit, but, but wait, 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 okay? Because in the very next chapter of John, this is a big theme for John. In the very next chapter, John refers to Jesus as the bridegroom who comes for his bride. And Later on, in John's writing in, in Revelation, John also wrote Revelation. In fact, many would say that those were written just a few years apart from one another. There, John, all over the place, refers to Jesus as the bride, as the, as the bridegroom who's come, who comes. I mean, for example, Revelation 19, This is John's vision of the future that's yet to come, that that we are still anticipating, we are still waiting for. Look Look what it says. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why should we do that? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The lamb for, for John, that's always Jesus. For The wedding of Jesus is finally here. The hour has come. And his bride, he says, that's us, has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, to the great feast, the wedding party, to the marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus came for his bride, that's us. And marriage, I mean, that metaphor, right? That's a, that's a big one. Marriage changes Everything. Christians have a brand new kind of intimacy. I mean, I had no idea. I don't think a lot of people do, right? When you first get married, how much is actually going to change in your life? It's all over the place, right? I mean, priorities, schedules, patterns, habits, hobbies, even likes and dislikes. I mean, everything begins to change by nature of this, of this new relationship. And even though it's hard at times... I mean, it's worth it for the relationship, right? And that's that's kind of what's going on here, that that if this is true, if if Jesus is our husband, then everything changes. I mean, think about the implications for this kind of intimacy with our creator, with the God who made us. I mean, for example, Jesus, obviously he cares about the small things. Even wine running out out of party. If, if he is our husband, we can take him with big things, small things. It doesn't really matter. Because we have that relationship, that intimacy. There's nothing we can't bring him. And if he's our husband, our greatest ambition ought to be intimacy with him. If, if he's our husband, then he knows us better than anybody else that loves us anyway. If he's our husband, he is committed to us. He will not divorce us, no matter what we do, no matter how far we go. If he's our husband, He supersedes every other relationship in our lives. Every other one. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore what other people think of you or or trying to impress others because our husband, because of Jesus, because of his death, accepts us, approves of us. It doesn't matter what other people think because our husband loves us. And even if you're single but would prefer to be married or, you know, married and kind of prefer to be single, right? Right? We belong to someone greater than any spouse, any relationship that we could possibly have because we're married to the the master of the feast. And I think only this understanding that this was what was going on there behind the scenes, I think only this explains why Jesus would respond with such ridiculous extravagance at some seemingly random wedding. It's because he's thinking about us. He's thinking about the day that will yet come, the celebration unlike any other, when there will be well after well after well of the the finest drinks and table after table after table of the most exquisite delights, the greatest celebration, the greatest party the world has ever known. The marriage supper of the Lamb. After hearing this story, if you are a wine drinker, Drink it differently. Savor it. Knowing that it is only a shadow of the joy that is offered to us. The well of unending delight. Or with every feast, I mean, who doesn't like the feast, right? With every feast, with every party, it is just a taste. The tiniest glimmer of all that is offered to us in Jesus. Like a husband and wife long separated by circumstances outside of our control, we anticipate the return of our husband and all that lies in store for us. Before we move past this, I mean, just reflect on that for a moment. Does that kind of intimacy, does that describe your relationship with this Jesus? And if not, why not? I mean, could it be that you're still more or less, you know, married to somebody or something else? that keeps competing for, for his affections? Are you putting the time in, the effort required in any relationship? It takes time. And if you're not sure what that looks like, let us, let us help you in that. Christians have a brand new intimacy. Well, I hope at this point we're beginning to see a little bit. I hope it's starting to make kind of some sense. I know you have to look for it there. I think it's there. But I hope you're beginning to see how beautiful, how glorious this simple little miracle is. And we see the answer to just one more question, and it's an important one. How does Jesus make any of this possible? I mean, how how could it happen, right? How can we, sinful people who live our lives rejecting our true husband, how can we have this kind of intimacy with a holy God? Well, as Jesus thought about his own wedding day, he would have inevitably thought about the road he had to take to get there. The challenge, the difficulty. It was a hard road in store for Jesus, no small task. There are two big clues in the story, or symbols, maybe. John loves symbols. You might have noticed that already in the text. Two clues or symbols of how Jesus makes it possible. First, the symbol of the jars. And that's an important one in and of itself, right? The jars that are clearly labeled in the text for the Jewish rites of purification. That's in verse, in verse six. Now, any first century Jewish person would have, would have read that and known that something was happening here. But for us, it's, we're, we don't know what that even means, right? What that looks like. But those jars would have been necessary for ceremonial cleansing, for a kind of physical washing in order to enter the presence of God. And at a party, a wedding party, which was a religious celebration, it was required that the people clean themselves up to be able to enter into the presence of God. It was was absolutely necessary. And so what would have happened, the party is already underway, is that most of the guests would probably have already washed themselves in it. Just sort of washing their hands, right? Cleansing themselves to, to be able to enter into this time with God, this time of celebration. And then Jesus says essentially dump it out if they haven't already, fill it with new water, and he makes wine in it. No longer something that merely touches the outside of our bodies. that sort of gives the the facade of cleanliness before God, but something that goes deep within to to the core of who we are. Jesus is taking the old order of getting right with God and saying, no, 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 that doesn't work that way. It's insufficient. It's inadequate. I've got a better way, he says. A purification that starts on the inside and then works its way out. So that's the, that's the first clue, the symbol. The jars themselves. It's really important here. And the second is, is really just the wine. Even, even the wine is an, an important symbol here because later on, and... and Many of us are probably aware of this. In John 13, that's when John says Jesus' hour has come. The time of his death is near. That's the Last Supper. That's when Jesus takes the bread and and the cup and he says, this wine, this cup is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Both these symbols, the jar and the wine, they go together. The only way to be in relationship with God, forgiven of our sins, to, to grab life to the full, a life that begins now and extends onto it into eternity. The only way is through this new kind of purification. The only way is through the wine of his blood. Just think about the abundance. You think a thousand bottles is a lot or a whole well is a lot. Jesus' blood was poured out unending for us, replacing the old system, trumping the old ways, giving us something new. There's never been anything like it. Jesus offers us a brand new everything. Therefore, Christians have a new kind of wholeness, a new kind of wholeness. Our our standing before God is not based on rules, but on relationship, it's not based on what we have done or could possibly do. It's based upon what, what he has done. It's not based on me washing myself, me, me cleaning up my acts, right? Putting on the right face before I come to God or, or saying the right things. It is based on him. I mean, every other religion or way of life, doesn't matter who you are, or what you believe, it's all about me. I've got to find my way. I've got to make my mark. I've got to find my happiness. I've got to be good enough so some God or other will will accept me. But only Jesus says, come and let me wash you. Let me cleanse you from the inside out. And he does that for us through his blood. In Christ, there is a new wholeness, a new purification. So if, if this is true, if this is what Jesus is communicating with this little miracle, what are we going to do about it? I mean, this, this new kind of everything, right? This, this intimacy, this wholeness, this joy. What does that look like for you to truly encounter this Jesus? I mean, for some of us, maybe it just begins by, by giving him a chance, right? And have you actually tried him out? Or, or his way of life out? What's holding you back? What do you think you're possibly going to get that's better or more than what the master of the feast can give us? What, what's, what's, what are you waiting for? For others of us? Maybe you've embraced this life, but it's, it's grown cold, or, or maybe you feel like it's sort of cooling down, you're sort of less interested. Get to know this Jesus. Jesus. How could we not invite him, one like this, into every aspect of our lives and our world, and build our lives upon him, to do anything we can to get to know him better? For he is our true husband, the master of the feast. Yeah, it's a strange miracle. It'll always be a little bit of a strange miracle to most of us, won't it? But do you see it there? He is the master of the feast. One one who offers unending joy. He is the better husband, the, the one whose love will never run out, who will never leave you. He's the better jar of purification who, who washes us, not on the outside, but where we, where we know we need it, deep within, where the, where the shame and the guilt lives in my heart. That's where he washes. And he's the better wine, delight and satisfaction like we have never before experienced. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not a meal for the past that we simply remember. It's not a meal for the future that we, that we purely anticipate. It is a meal, a life that is offered to us right now. And this morning we get to have a taste, just a little taste, as we gather around the Lord's table together. And I, lo- I love that we get to do this today because what a, what a perfect way to sort of wrap up this idea that we get to come to this table of celebration, and even though it was a hard table for Jesus and it's, it was painful for him to be able to accomplish it for us, it for us is a moment of celebration and joy. We get, we get a, just a taste. Well, if you're a guest here or, or newer, let me just kind of explain quickly how we do that. Okay, first of all, uh, you don't have to be a member here. Um, if you embrace Jesus, you are welcome at this table. You're your family. We, we long to be able to celebrate it uh, with you. Uh, we have two stations up here in the front, two in the back. Uh, and whenever you're ready over the next few minutes, make your way to one of those tables. We'll gre- group you together in four or five. Um, that's how we typically do it because it's kind of hard to party by yourself, right? Uh, we're a community, a family. So even if you don't know the people around you, this is Family. The eternal community that God has placed you in. And when you've done so, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and when everyone in your group has done so, you can eat it together. Well, Jesus invites us to his great feast of delight, the one that will satisfy like none other. So let's come now and get a taste.